GoneMobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Welcome back to Gone Mobile. John, my friend, how's it going? Not too bad since the last time we chatted. We're actually getting some podcasts uh, recorded one after another now. This is feeling pretty good. I know, working up a backlog. It's like we're really back into things. It's kind of nice. Uh, and, to, and to keep it going, uh, you know, this is this is a, an episode that we've wanted to do for a very long time and a couple plans fell through previous times, but but it all kind of worked out this time, I think. And and we're excited to, to really dig into some machine learning madness today with none other than Frank Kruger. How's it going, Ooh, Frank? None other. I think there are a couple others than me. It's a pretty common name, but... <laughs> uh, well, we can just close well. it right there then. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, oh, ML. Are you excited? Uh, this is pretty dangerous territory. We That's what we're counting on. Days. It, isn't this the topic that uh, you and James on your, your other podcast, which we should probably plug here, isn't this the one that you guys always complain that you always talk about anyway? I think he hates it, but I love talking about it. So that's the little conflict in the merge there. Um, ah. So this is perfect. Then you can come over here. We can be so like you your, forked your over to our podcast. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> you get the good stuff. <laughs> nice. So I just to sort of set the stage here, I mean, machine learning is a, a really widely talked about topic, but I think often pretty misunderstood too. Like from your perspective at like a high level, like what does machine learning actually mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> great. I'm not great at definitions, but uh, for me, it's a different style of programming, a different style of uh, problem solving. Um, I heard one really smart person say it's the connectionist way of solving problems. So instead of writing an algorithm, you just glue together a bunch of little pieces, teach them to learn something, and then hope that they produce something in the end. It's a whole different style of problem solving. That said, it also means to me like competitions and big money and big data. You know, there's so many like industry connotations that go with ML, but try to keep it at the low level. Yeah, it seems like everybody's doing ML in one way or another now. Um, and, and maybe like to, to try and kind of get a definition of what machine learning is. Like, I wonder if it'd help if you could walk through like, what's the quintessential example you would use to <laughs> give someone when you're explaining this to them? Let's go with the worst quintessential example here. Let's Ooh, go with stock, yeah, stock market prediction. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if you could just teach a computer to learn what the stock market is, throw it lots of data, here's the stock market, here's all of history, here's all of human behavior, and uh, predict for me what I should invest in, you know? Um, so that's kind of like <laughs> the uh, turning something into gold alchemist approach. That's what we all kind of wish machine learning was, but taper that down into more realistic things, like what I did um predicting text um google translate is a great um example of machine learning you throw a bunch of languages at it show the sentence means this in english this means this in spanish and eventually a machine can hopefully learn that translation without you writing any algorithms again just relying on crazy training and lots of data yeah, and it's that sort of differentiation between like algorithm and whatever this is that that I'd love to try and clarify too because you know from a, a standard programming mindset, I mean, you think in algorithms, right? You think in determinism, you think in like, yeah. you know, I have this input, I have my code, and maybe there's a whole lot of crazy branching because, you know, mm -hmm. I put the learning into there and like, that's how code works, right? So like, how does machine learning different from that? Like, how do you, how does it actually get put together? 
I guess you're actually just making me think of it as a bit of a spectrum now. So you have your programmatic if statements, while loops, all that stuff, some algorithm. But then um, when you start writing more sophisticated software, you start throwing in things we call heuristics, kind of guesses at things. If this variable is between these values, if it's around this, if there's this many correlations with it, group it higher on the list, you know, uh, uh Google search rank, whatever that thing's called. This is kind of a heuristic algorithm, just measuring a bunch of data. So then you have your stats. And then on the extreme end, you just give up all control. (laughs) You're just like, here's a bunch of data. Uh, Figure it out, please. (laughs) So like you're talking about a bunch of different examples, you know, a few minutes ago. I'm like, is machine learning, you know, is it this one big algorithm that everybody uses with different models or are they a bunch of different algorithms? Like how, how does that, how would you differentiate like what the algorithm looks like between those different cases that you talked about? Oh, there's so many algorithms. ML is definitely an umbrella term. I tend to focus on neural networks a lot, but there are a lot of alternatives to it. Uh, simple regression, linear regression, just learning from data is like the most basic ML. The whole idea is throw data at it, get a solution to a problem. So there's lots of old techniques for this. Uh, something fun, uh, if you want to get into this, is go to uh, the Kaggle competitions, K-A-G-G-L-E. And you can actually look at historic competitions and see which algorithms have kind of won out in the day. And right now you see a lot of neural networks, obviously, when it comes to images, uh, they do very well there. But there's um, another algorithm called decision trees. It's a pretty classic AI algorithm. I won't go into details here, but there's an awesome decision tree software called XGBoost. And that thing kills it in competition. So that's not even a neural network. That's a whole different algorithm. But again, throw data at it, make it learn something. So is that sort of like the the programming model then? I mean, you have the, these models or algorithms that you bring in, you throw a lot of data at them, and then you you see what what the output is, and then judge how how good or not it is. Like like what is the the interaction model with here? Because that that also just feels like it feels very black boxy, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have two big control points in this process. So we've been talking at a very high level. Let's take a step down. You can choose A, the algorithm, and the architecture of that algorithm. You know, lots of choices there. Um, but almost the bigger problem you have to solve is the data. What data are you giving it? In what form? What are the outputs? Can you tell it what the outputs are? Or does it kind of have to learn on its own? This is a supervised learning versus unsupervised learning. Do I actually have outputs or do I more just have goals? And I hope you get to the goal. That's kind of the more advanced stuff. But you have the selection and your data input matters so much. It biases your network. It dictates what it can learn. And actually, the biggest problem with it is it dictates how the network can cheat. So there's all sorts of tells you can put in data accidentally where the network will, you think you're trying to teach it to solve like the translation problem, but really like it just found a sneaky way to do a one for one comparison or something, you know, these these learning algorithms will cheat any opportunity they have. So the data modeling and what data you give it becomes very critical, almost as important or more important than the actual architecture and algorithm. So you mentioned supervised and unsupervised, and I'm trying to wrap my head around, you know, unsupervised, how, how I, you know, how a, 
um, algorithm would know that it's correct and I wouldn't have to kind of validate yeah. that. Can you talk about that a little bit more? <laughs> now we're really deep diving. <laughs> so there's um, there's a lot of unsupervised learning uh, techniques. Uh, one of my favorites called reinforcement learning. Imagine the problem you have a robot and it has two legs and you want to teach it to walk. Well, you don't really have inputs and outputs for it because if you had outputs, then you had already solved the walking problem. You need it to solve the walking problem. So you devise other techniques. Um, in this case, there's like a reward function. So the amount of time that you actually stay up on your feet, that's the reward. If you're up for a second, one reward, two seconds, two rewards. And then you have an algorithm trying to optimize the awards instead of the actual goal of walking. So you devise these strategic ways to just feed it something to make it learn from. And then you run into other cases where you'll have networks training other networks. Um, uh, I, an, a good example is the uh, Google Voice Synthesizer. So when they first trained it, it just spoke gibberish because they didn't even train it to do text-to-speech. They just said, learn English. And it just <laughs> puts together gibberish. And it's, it's kind of fun, actually, if you listen to those. And, but then they would take that network and just kind of jam in English text with some other gibberish, with some actual spoken ones, and it would correlate the two. So again, they don't have the example of text-to-speech itself. They're just using multiple networks to kind of force each other. And this is where it gets really deep divey, but really fun, too. So let's talk a little bit about the the modeling side of things. I mean, you mentioned that the you know the input that you're giving to these machine learning algorithms is you know one of the most important things there. Like, how do you like how do you approach modeling your data in a way that's good for a machine learning algorithm? And and also on the other side, like how do you actually know if what you gave it was good and it's you're getting kind of good output versus you know it's taking shortcuts or doing some other funny mm -hmm. things. Yeah. Um, so this problem can be solved at so many levels. Like if I had a network that's going to deal with images, first I have to choose, is it grayscale? Is it color? What's the resolution of the image? This stuff kind of matters. Um, you would kind of hope in the future it doesn't, but today it matters. Um, you're always conditioning. You're deciding, is my data categorical or is it numbers like let's go back to stock market and let's say it wants to predict the stock market it has to deal with numbers these aren't categories but it turns out uh the networks do pretty well with numbers but they're not great at it other things are categorical so you're always making these kind of decisions but these are like classic data warehousing data decisions so i kind of have faith in the future that this won't actually be too big of a problem i think the the biggest thing is um how much data you give it. It's just uh, these things are hungry, but they're hard to train at the same time. In one way, they just want as much data as you can throw at them. So you have the problem of, I can't just give it a thousand samples. Ideally, I'd give it a million samples. So big data, that's what we're talking about. But at the same time, it's you know like the resolution of the image. You know How, how much data am I going to put through once? So it's the training set size plus the size of the data itself. It's a constant balancing act with the size of the network, how fast you want it to execute, the nature of the network. Unfortunately, this is stuff that you just kind of learn after fooling around for a couple of months, years. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like, you know, like data set being maybe the biggest problem to solve. Like, are there any, um, you know, techniques or anything out there to help kind of like get more data? Like I'm thinking in terms of images too, like are, are there any um, 
ways that you can kind of collect bigger data sets uh, that are more automated than just going out and like me downloading a bunch of images. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's it's all hard work, no, no. right? No, I mean, we, we cheat in a few ways with images. It's fun. You can uh, rotate images. You can flip them. You can desaturate them, saturate them. You can throw tons of color filters on them. And so you can fake different environmental conditions with them. But a lot of networks that like detect the face, they're smarter than that. They see through it. So in that case, you know, if you train on a bunch of people from America, it's going to be different if you train from a bunch of people in China. These are different networks. So you really need a broad sample, an unbiased broad sample. And that's that's always kind of the trick. One of the uh, big famous networks out there is called Image. Uh, no, the network's not called ImageNet. The data set is called ImageNet, and a lot of networks are trained on it. And it's an important data set because, oh my God, someone actually put together a data set of images that are actually labeled. So it's just like, we're all begging for these data sets too. And then you mentioned labels there too. Like what, is, what does labeling mean in terms of uh, you know, machine learning data sets there? This is kind of a classic problem that got solved basically in 2012 is going from an image to a label. Up to that, um, up to about 2012, I think I'm getting that year right. We didn't really have convolutional neural networks. It's a certain kind of neural network. And the problem was hard. Um, no one got above 70% recognition uh, for as long as this competition existed. Then in 2012, we got these convolution convolutional neural networks. And I think they're up to like 95% accuracy on the ImageNet data set. Like they've basically learned it. And that's... Um, it's like the biggest, simplest win for machine learning because it's so valuable in a million circumstances. You have the Microsoft Seeing uh, app, Seeing, am I getting that right? Vision app? What do they call it? See, seeing AI. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's basically that network running a million times and doing a few more advanced things than that, but it's basically that network. And so just that simple example, that big win there, and you can apply that to so many things. Um, uh, product identification, vehicle identification, flaw detection, burnt capacitor detection, like that problem just has so many use cases. And so it's talked about a lot. It's studied a lot, but it's also kind of solved. It's kind of fantastic. <laughs> so if you were trying to to train, say, an image, sticking with the, the images example, if you, mm -hmm. if you were putting together a big data set of images and let's say it's a, a supervised learning scenario, so you know what to label, like what you know what you're yeah. looking for in terms of image yeah. recognition, um, I would assume that you have to sort of keep different sets of images, right? Like one that you're using to train the network and another set that you're using to verify the results. Is, oh, is yeah. that sort of how it ends up working? Because otherwise, the, you know, you're sort of cheating the network by giving it the answer for the whole set, right? Actually, it's worse than that. You break it into three sets. Um, Two is not good enough. And actually, people will go to a more fluid three set, but we won't get into that. The three sets are um, training and validation and then test. And the difference is while I'm training, I have so many knobs I can turn. I can choose the size of the network, input resolution, all this stuff. And it really affects the performance of the network. But how do I measure that? Well, you don't measure that on the training data. Like you said, that's stupid. You're just lying to yourself. So <laughs> you compare it against a validation set, something that the trainer never sees. It's some new images never seen before. 
But you're using that to train these knobs, these hyperparameters, we call them, all these features of the network. So you can get into this case where you're also lying to yourself because you are tuning it to the validation set now. So it's learning from the training set tuned to the validation set. So you keep a third set, the test set. And the rule there is you never get to see this. The developer of the network never gets to see it ideally. Like the program manager might be, like the CEO maybe. <laughs> but like um, this is um, secret stuff that you're not allowed to tune for. And that's how you actually verify how good is the network. So all the Kaggle competitions, you'll see um, people actually overtrain on the validation set all the time. They'll be ranked number two going into the final test. The test that'll come and they'll fall down to position 10 because that's what happens. So you mentioned that, like, you know, obviously you want the biggest data set possible with all of this. Um, is there any kind of like commonly understood like minimum data set size that you're going <laughs> to get reasonable results with? Oh, <laughs> well, it, it definitely depends on the size of the network and the variety of inputs you're giving it. If your test set really covers your domain, then chances are you can get kind of small. So let's go with, I train networks on 200, 200 images all the time but they're definitely biased toward the set. They definitely get a bias in them. Uh, so 200 to 1,000, I guess, would be your minimum. I'll, I'll do that sometimes just to see, like, does this network even have a chance? Like, it's fine if it overtrains. So just let it overtrain, see if it can at least overtrain. You'd be surprised some things can't. <laughs> like, they just don't learn at all. Uh, so you would start there, but you really want to be into the semi-thousands and ideally hundreds and millions. So I think neural networks here is something that's been mentioned a lot, and it's worth sort of digging into and trying to, to put a definition to. Like, are, you know, are neural networks and machine learning dependent concepts? Are they effectively the same thing? Is it a subset? Like, what, is, what are neural networks and like, what's the relationship there? Uh, I guess subset's a good word. Neural networks are a subset of machine learning, or I guess I prefer it's an algorithm of machine learning. For, for it to be machine learning, it has to learn. And so... Um, the decision trees I mentioned earlier, XGBoost, that thing learns. It's actually a gradient descent learner. Um, neural networks, they are a whole different architecture than those decision trees, but they also learn through gradient descent again. It's a great technique. We use it for everything. And so, but there are linear regression. There are um, lots, lots of clustering algorithms, k-means, k-all those things. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen them around. Uh, they, they all fall under this uh, umbrella of machine learning. Anything that takes data and can spit out an algorithm falls under it. So they're not Neuron really necessarily different. But you know, so what what would be the difference if you had to like you know draw a line in the sand? Boy, um, neural networks are very simple uh, little bits of algebra. Um, so add two numbers, find the max of two numbers, uh, um, whatever. <laughs> Think of a math equation that we'll call that a cell. And what you do is you have millions of these cells, just lots of them. My network has um, 140,000 of these, but they're very simple. And all the complexity comes in how they're connected to each other. And you can do random connections, you can do layered connections, you can do all these advanced things. But I guess that's the defining characteristic of a neural network is that you have these kind of simple cells with connections that are providing basically the intelligence of the network, the way connections are formed. 
And uh, in neural networks, we always talk about layers because there's just gotten to be too many of these uh, little cell things. And so nowadays, um, networks are usually just named for what layers they have in them. Okay, yeah. And I think neural networks just, it it ends up sounding like a, I mean, it, it is a complicated concept, obviously, like these things are, are kind of magic, but but it's also, it just has a name that implies a lot of magic or and neuron is a bit of like an overloaded word just <laughs> yeah. in general, right? So it's like a neuron in terms of these like neur- neural networks, is a neuron effectively like a like a decision point within some big tree of, of possible flows through this algorithm? Is that a, one way to yeah. look at it? Yeah, but it's more broad than a decision. It's better to think just a simple mathematical function, a basic function is kind of how we've done it. And it's good not to draw too many analogies to the brain here. Uh, Neural networks (laughs) are definitely inspired by the brain and our nervous system, but the complexity level is orders of magnitude off. What a neuron accomplishes, what a biological neuron accomplishes is way more than we're asking these very simple cells. So it's kind of fun. It's kind of nature inspired, but at the same time, it's its own thing because it's math and not uh, just simple activation ions. Right. And I not still think that gradient ion. descent would be a good band name if anyone was starting oh, an ML-based band. There better just be throw a that few out there. at least. Let's do some YouTube <laughs> searching. <laughs> so you mentioned the word math there. And that's like, you know, I, being a programmer, I, I probably should like math more than I do. But I, I just, I, I find that I don't love math. So, yeah. you know, how how much of like this actual core machine learning, how much of these um different algorithms and stuff like how do much do I need to know as a developer if I want to start taking advantage of them in my own apps today okay well uh let's start with the easy way of if you're a developer and want to take advantage of them then you should just grab someone's existing network maybe retrain it but like their architecture maybe even their data input set maybe throw your own data input set to it and hopefully at that point it's been refined to the point where it's easy to use there's a pragmatic interface to it you know that's the way you should roll but if you're coming from scratch, it's a little bit of a different story. Um, where to begin here? Where, where do you want to start with this problem? <laughs> File news. So, yeah, yeah. Let's start there. <laughs> like, it, let's say, like, what does it look like to even train a model in this? Like, you know, if, if we were saying, okay, this is what you know, an overview of what you would do if you were yeah. quote unquote training a model. Like, what does that look yeah. like? Uh, first, you collect your data set. And, you know, actually talking about the math part, you don't really deal with math on the model side so much. You deal with math on the data side because, unfortunately, you have to munge around the data a little bit in order to input it to the model because the model is so math-based. It's just numbers flowing around. So your job with the data part is, A, collect the data, but then you got to kind of think of a numeric encoding of the data. And that's probably the hairiest side. So not only are you making all these decisions about the size of your data and what's included, but then it's encoding into numbers you have to decide. Um, There's some well-established encodings that you use. Like if you have categorical data, they actually use um, a bit representation, something we're all familiar with. But if I have 100 categories, I actually have a 100-bit vector with only one digit on And that's how I represent a category. There are other uh, more advanced techniques called embeddings. And these are quite fantastic. This came out of the linguistic world where they learned that you can condense these bit vectors down. But it's an advanced topic, but you'll learn it. (laughs) Um, So you'll be playing with your math mostly in this part where you're taking your data and turning it into a good input set for the model. And that'll 
be based on what model and architecture you picked. Telerik UI for Xamarin is a collection of more than 70 Xamarin forms and Xamarin wrappers, a theming mechanism with a built-in predefined theme, predefined Visual Studio item templates, MVVM support, and more. The toolset offers fast-loading, excellent drawing capabilities, pixel perfection, and stunning UI, all while providing flexible customization. One C-sharp project, three native mobile apps. Release your inner .NET Ninja and create awesome cross-platform mobile apps with Telerik UI for Xamarin. For more information or to download a trial, visit Telerik.com slash Xamarin dash gone mobile. So you mentioned like taking other people's models. Are there some good resources for people getting started to go find these things? <laughs> um, you know, I, I keep begging for there to be like a great one-stop shop of models. Like I should just be able to go buy some models. And I think a few people have tried to start these up, but they're all kind of pathetic, to be honest. And so I honestly just Google for core ML models, you know, like who, who's compiled a model and put it out there. Um, the community is actually pretty good about releasing the source code to their models too. So quite often, uh, you'll find a model that does roughly what you want, but maybe you'll want to retrain it. And that's a little bit harder, but it's at least a very good start to Google, you know, core ML model, Onyx, O-N-N-X model, you know, any of these kind of standard model file types, see what people have done um, until we have the good app store of models. <laughs> So let's try and, and put this all together in uh, using the example of some of what you built recently for continuous. So like, what did you build? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I built a better keyboard predictor. So much like when you're in iMessage or messages, whatever we call it these days, and it's suggesting the next word you should type, you know how it's always kind of wrong, but it's kind of right at the same time. I wanted that for C-sharp code because uh, typing on the iPad, especially on the on-screen keyboard, there's a lot of keys missing when you're doing code. We love our ASCII art. We use symbols everywhere. We use stupid patterns, you know. So um, I wanted a better keyboard predictor to ease the typing process in continuous. So like, how did you decide that, you know, machine learning was, was the way to go with this? Like what, what kind of model like, concept did you come up with? Uh, so I should start with what it had before, because I already had to have something to help someone out. This is before the machine learning part. And what I did was I scanned a bunch of C-sharp files on my computer, so a bunch of my code, built a little histogram of what are the most common keys and all that stuff. And then I made my own static sorted list of all these buttons. And that list ended up being pretty long. It was non-contextual. It was always just up there. I honestly don't even know if people used it because it wasn't honestly that helpful, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, so I wanted to do better than that. And I'd spent the last year kind of deep diving into machine learning, learning as much as I can about it. And it just kind of occurred to me that this is a pretty trivial problem, <laughs> this kind of sequence stuff. We have uh, neural networks basically devoted to this very problem. Those little cells doing the little bit of math. There are cells that do a little bit of math that's devoted to sequence prediction. They're very good at it. And it just occurred to me that we have core ML on the phone. That's the big thing, right? Once it's baked into the OS. Mm -hmm. So this is all just, I know how to do it. It's baked into the OS. What a better time. And it's a perfect use case. So how did you go about training this network? Like the, it sounds like you potentially found a, an algorithm out there that was already kind of built around sequence prediction, or did you have to do anything yeah. on your own there? Uh, no, at this point, there's some pretty just well-established. Even with sequence prediction, you have like three or four options. Um, 
You have this fancy thing called an LSTM. You have those convolutional networks that are so good at images. Turns out they can do time also. So they're just kind of little miracle machines. And so you have a few options there. But at this point, I was just taking a very conservative, conservative, this is a sequence predictor network, very simple, nothing advanced, nothing to see here. So all the trick was in training. And that's where I went down the most mysterious paths of the whole problem of what data do you feed it? How do you feed it? All that stuff. And uh, the first time I did it, I just had it going character by character in the C-sharp code. So it learned syntax, it learned keywords, it learned how to name variables, it would hallucinate class names, it would just, <laughs> you just told it to generate C-sharp code, it's like, great, generating C-sharp code. So it's uh, a good code monkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways, it's like that, uh, the Google voice synthesizer I mentioned, where that was just, it produced gibberish, but it was good sounding gibberish. This was <laughs> producing code, scare quotes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, the problem with that network was that it was too biased and there are just so many biases it learned. Um, let's start with the good ones. Curly braces. It learned where I put my curly braces, not necessarily (laughs) where you want to put your curly braces. It learned tabs versus spaces and went insane about (laughs) it. It could never decide because so it became just like us. That's amazing. (laughs) It was neurotic, just like us. (laughs) Oh, God, what were some of the terrible things it learned? Um, It learned how to do comments or learned, again, in scare quotes, comments. Mm -hmm. So not only was it learning C-sharp, it was learning English to try to explain the C-sharp that it was generating. That was terrible. It would try to generate doc comments, like documenting parameter names. (laughs) But I I never gave it a long enough memory, so it would always get the parameter names wrong because it would just it would forget. (laughs) what it was doing. (laughs) So you run into all these problems. I didn't know what to do about that. So it took me a little bit, but I finally decided to just radically simplify the input set to it. I uh, removed all white space. Um, All identifiers became X, basically, you know, just nothing. So it didn't have to learn variable names, didn't have to learn comments, didn't have to learn white spacing rules. So I kind of need to put a few of those back in. And um, yeah, just just not having to learn English. I was surprised at how much (laughs) English the network was learning. I'm curious to know if you you yourself ended up learning anything about your own programming habits or what types of comments you write based on what the the algorithm started spitting out. Because there's clearly a very biased input set, right? It is. It is. And actually, you would see this most when uh, the other funny thing it would generate are string constants. Now, if you think back to all your code and what is in your string constants, it's pretty random. And this poor algorithm is trying to figure out what should I put in the string? And that's when I started to see like, oh, I over obsess about reflection because it would almost always try to reflect over something. It's just like, well, I need a string. So I would put a property name in there or something like that. So I guess I did learn that. But I think I also learned that um, this could be a great assistant. I think it could actually help in some cases. So I'm trying to think of like some actual like um, Visual Studio plugins or something to build. Because I think... As you um, say, is the VS Mac plugin coming anytime soon or... Uh, we'll, we'll add it to your add-in so that everyone gets it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I haven't quite figured out what exactly it would do because this is all very similar to code refactoring and uh, code completion and all that, uh, inserting snippets. But I feel like it can help. Uh, one problem I was thinking about a lot was um, if you get an error message 
and you see the edit that the user performs to fix the error message, it'd be super cool if it just did that edit for you. Like it could figure out what the right thing to do there was. So I think um, what I mostly learned was, dang, I want to do a lot more with this. <laughs> so basically like the equivalent of in a, a word processor, like the automatic spell check fixing that goes as you type things, right? Yeah, that would be so much better, huh? Yeah, because I mistype all the time. And well, the way code completion is so aggressive now, it doesn't let you mistype anymore. It's so weird. It'll just insert random simple names and all that. But <laughs> I feel like we can do a little better with code completion there too, where it should know whether to guess at a name or not. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of potential. And, and the first thing that comes to mind is like, I, I, were you or were you not just like scraping source code off of GitHub and, and putting that into your model? Like we have a wealth of data, you know, as open source software goes to to kind of pull in and, and train models with. Um, I, I'm curious, like what your approach there was to get the volume of data in. All right. This is where uh, what you learn is different from what you practice. So... <laughs> If I were writing a blog, I would say about all these important rules about not biasing your data and all that, and how you should sample randomly from the largest data set that you can possibly get, which would be GitHub. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. That's exactly what I should have done. It's what I meant to do. <laughs> but instead, I just scanned every one of my C-sharp files, and it learned all of that. So I'm sorry. All biases in the network are my fault 100%. Um, yeah. That, that kind of leads to like an interesting question too, and, and one that I had thought about a few times as we're talking. Um, like you know, you train a model, and, and obviously, uh, mobile devices are probably not at the point yet where you want to be kind of teaching that model on the device itself. I, I, as my understanding is that you have a model and you kind of stick with it on device. But like, you know, is that something that you know a lot of people are starting to do too? Is kind of feed feedback um, data coming from users using that model back into to teaching it more, or, or how, what's the story there? Uh, this is definitely what needs to happen in the future. So we have mixed results on this front, but this is obviously how we have to collect data sets. There's no other way. Like you can't just go out and I guess you could buy data sets and make someone do it, but no. Uh, so you see this in uh, Microsoft's custom vision.ai. Yeah, did I get that right? Uh, they have this feedback loop all set for you. So uh, if a user says like, no, you got this wrong, then it can be uploaded to the server. It can be tagged. You can tag it what it should be later, retrain the network, send it back down. This is um, where I think the cloud services, this is their biggest, best feature that they can possibly have is you streaming down new models and uh, giving user feedback, donating training data if you opt in, hopefully. Uh, that said, uh, Training on the device, I think, is also very exciting just for the privacy stuff. I would love apps to find patterns in what I do, learn common responses I have to emails, right? Like, just write the email for me. Come on. It's 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I writing this? Um, you know, basic stuff like that, I think, is going to make great headway. And that's why I like to see Apple doing what it does. Um, API-wise, like how easy is it to do? It's not very easy right now, unfortunately. They technically have all the APIs there, like on iOS. And I don't know the Android side very well, sorry. Um, but I'm sure, you know, it's Google. They're working on this. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I want to do training on the device, definitely. I wanted to learn my friends, my car, my household stuff without uh, that getting too far off and me having to worry about it. 
So speaking of on device, let's let's talk about what it actually looks like to to take a model once you have one, which I assume is output in some sort of format that you would just bundle into your app. Like, how do you take that and actually start using it using, say, I guess specifically Core ML in this case? Like, is it really yeah. easy to just plug in and ask it to make decisions for you? Yeah, in general, it is. Um, let's even take a step back, though. So I'm still in my in my case a Python script to train this model because that's the library I chose to use. That needs to be converted to a core ML model. And this is Apple's semi-proprietary file format. They publish the spec, but it's somewhat theirs. And for that, though, you just have to call some Python routines that will convert the model and output it. So that's actually pretty simple and basic. Now, this is where it gets fun and fancy. You drag that model into Visual Studio, at least on the Mac. I hope this works on Windows. I don't know. <laughs> and it'll generate wrapper classes for you that simplify uh, giving it the data input and getting data back out of it and actually executing it. So it's very nice. It creates like, <laughs> you can think of it as an API request response object, but it's better. It's like input output, something like that. But it's the exact same concept of instead of calling an API, I'm shooting it through a neural network. So you've got this shipping in continuous right now? Like, is this something that users <laughs> can get their hands on already? It's in the beta right now because I wanted to uh, make beta testers suffer with it first. <laughs> I have to verify a lot of things on device. Like CoreML only shipped in iOS 11. So I have to make sure that it falls back to the static keyboard and nothing crazy happens on older OSs and things like that because I still support iOS 9. So you always have to, unfortunately... I, don't you wish you could just take a dependency on iOS 11? Maybe someday, but <laughs> I if you're starting a new ML app, you might as well, though. No, no reason to support the old stuff. Um, and uh, I also kind of want to retrain it one more time. I have an idea on how to make it a little smarter. So when you're training, uh, the library loves to show you this accuracy number, and it's totally meaningless. There's nothing you can interpret from it, but mine's getting us other than you want a high number. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so if I was getting like 0.1% accuracy, I would think that's kind of a bad network. If I was getting 100% accuracy, then that means that the network is writing the code I would have written. And that's asking a bit much because that would have to know the problem I'm trying to solve and so many other things. Uh, so my network gets 67% accuracy. But I feel like I can bump that up. I feel like um, I want to give it more context so it knows if it's in a class or if it's in a method body, all these little contextual hints. And I think I can up its score a tiny bit and then I'll release it. So from your, obviously, given the, the biased data set, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like one, if you find that in your own personal usage of it, do you find that it's more than 67% accurate? Um, and also, you know, from other beta testers who might have different styles or things like that, if you've gotten, if it goes in the other direction. Yeah, actually, uh, the neat thing is that 67% accurate is for its best guess. Uh, the neat thing about this network is it actually gives a second best, a third best, a fourth best guess. And the way my UI works is I just display all those. I just sort by best to worst guess and hopefully the best ones at the front. And so I've noticed in practice, yeah, it always shows me the right one because it actually shows, I think I have it shown the top 10 even because there's a lot, there's a lot of space there on the iPad, say. Um, and so it's been pretty great for me. I'd say the few biases I don't like are, um, it hasn't learned C-sharp 7 syntax because I don't have that much C-sharp 7 code. 
And so the way it does auto properties, I don't agree with, you know, like it's always <laughs> suggesting private. I'm like, no, it should be suggesting curly brace, you know, so there, there's a few little squibbles and quabbles, whatever the word is to have there. But uh, otherwise, I'm actually pretty happy with it. I hope people enjoy it, too. Nice. So aside from the the accuracy of it, I'm also curious, like how how intensive it is to run these sorts of decisions inside of an app, because that's always something you have to be conscious of in, in a mobile app. Yeah, it works great on the iPad Pro. I don't really know about that. <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, I've definitely been testing on uh, the higher end stuff, but on it on the lowest end device, it's able to do the prediction in 100 milliseconds. So that's 10 times a second. And it's all done on a background thread. It's all done on the GPU. So you don't even notice it on the UI thread. Uh, from the user's perspective, it's instantaneous. So I've actually had no problems there. Actually, its biggest problem is it has to wait for Roslyn to finish parsing the syntax tree. <laughs> so it's like waiting for Roslyn, waiting for Roslyn. All right, ship it off to the GPU, get the answer back, display some UI. It's actually pretty fast. I was totally nervous about that because I did develop this on the iPad Pro. And then I went to the older device and I was like, oh, God, please work. And it did. Thank you, Apple engineers. You're awesome. So like has Apple on older devices, like did, did they start including special hardware to do the, the machine learning calculations or is this just kind of all done on the main CPU? No, this is all done through metal and anything that supports metal, which actually goes back quite far, I think all the way to iOS nine and maybe even, yeah, I think iOS nine. And um, so all that stuff is running GPU accelerated. It's not even touching the CPU. They always say in the docs, you don't know where it's going to run, but it's running on the GPU. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> you just kind of have to. Yeah. Uh, so that hasn't been an issue at all. I know I've put bigger networks on. Uh, one of my favorite networks is uh, Zoom In and Enhance. So this is image input, image output. So this is a giant network. It's 500 megabytes. Uh, this text predictor I have is 200 kilobytes. So this orders of magnitude larger. And even that will take a third of a second. So even that's not so bad. We're not up to like 60 frames per second, but, you know, someday. No, but for something like, you know, prediction, yeah. that's that's pretty pretty reasonable on older devices. Especially image in, image out. Like image in, label out, much smaller. That <laughs> is so much smaller. So, you know, I'm curious, are you working on anything in particular for either continuous, like to enhance, as you, you mentioned, retraining the model, but, you know, are you doing anything in addition to this or on any other projects? Like what what's your next ML project you're tackling <laughs> uh keyboard accelerators for all my apps that's it <laughs> uh yeah um for continuous i think I, I can't think of another uh ml thing that i quite need in there wow you're really making me think though so i'm gonna stop pondering <laughs> at the moment <laughs> uh but really what's happened is i mentioned over the last year i've been kind of deep diving so i've built a lot of networks that do Sometimes good things, sometimes terrible things. And it's always that question of, is this app worthy? You know, is, is this net, will someone pay for this network is essentially what I'm asking. And I don't feel like I've actually gotten there yet. I hope. Um, it's kind of my dream because I really do enjoy these things. So it'd be nice to make some money off of them. But till then, um, they're fun for me. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> I vlog about them. <laughs> that, that, that definitely counts for something, right? Um, and like we were talking about the, we met up for, for a beer recently and, you know, I was trying to just basically just put all the, all the interesting ideas and work onto you for all this stuff. You know, you could, you could just take this, you know, end steps further and just 
you know, go cross-reference with like Stack Overflow posts and, and figure that's out like, right. that's like the next variation I feel like of autocomplete is just like, you know, figure out what code they just pasted from Stack Overflow, reverse that to like what problem they're clearly trying to solve. And then just, you know, you hit enter oh. and your program's done. <laughs> Adaptive paste. I like that. So it changes the Stack Overflow answer. That's scary. Yeah, yeah just put, so... all, put all of us out of our jobs. Yeah. Why there is so still? much to be... <laughs> Now, would you scan the questions or the answers? I think I'd bias it to the answers because there's some terrible code on Stack Overflow. I don't want it to learn. Yeah, <laughs> or I guess that would be the trick. building apps anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you got me there. Okay. Even Small just from the, the perspective of like, like the, you know, the, the code monkey stuff we were joking about earlier of like, you know, what's the autocomplete version of like a C-sharp program? Like if you factored in also copying in random stack overflow answers and then until something compiled and then see what happens when you oh, run geez. it <laughs> <laughs> this is how Speaking the end starts i don't know if it's useful i just think it's <laughs> i i think um just broadly speaking ai assistance is where we're at next i think there's a lot of ground to be had here maybe it's not just pure apps built around a pure network but anything that can help you in your task like um i used to know um uh, graphic designers and unfortunately a whole part of their job was just outlining things so that they could delete the background from it and like that should totally just be a neural network at least helping you with the trace or just removing the background for you you know there's whole ways we can simplify a lot of tasks and there are actually people working on taking neural networks that specifically learn a piece of software so like one that learns how to control photoshop one we could have con learns to control Visual Studio and, you know, runs the right dialogues, starts the debugger. Who knows? That's going too far, but it's fun to think about at least. Absolutely. Well, I think I think somehow, hopefully, we managed to, to make ML seem somewhat approachable, um, which I think is no, no small feat. But is there anything that we, we sort of missed along the way? Anything still worth calling out? Uh, I, I would just say, um, definitely go download some networks and use them. It's just fun to see them execute, just as words of wisdom. But also, it's very painful to train your own, and you're going to hate it, and you're not going to succeed the first night, but maybe the second night you would. I think it's worth the pain, um, just because it is kind of mind-bending a little bit to realize how these things work and how simple they are actually at their core, and that all the complexity is just fluff and clutter like the the simplicity is at the core it's there it's just all the junk around it makes it ugly do you have any recommended like good jumping off points for someone looking to to maybe get a head start or, or like a you know really good resource for learning that sort of thing or is it really just a matter of you have to bang your head against it till it makes <laughs> sense <laughs> Uh, there, I read one book. If you, if you're a book person, are are people still book people? Do people read books? I think there's some out there. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> Talking to two authors, I like to just check up from time to time. <laughs> so, um, uh, the author of Keras, K E R A S, which is a library I use. It's a Python library. Sorry, .NET developers. We have ML.NET out now, but I don't know any books written about it or anyone and many code examples. Uh, but uh, Francois wrote a book, and I think it's probably the best AI book I've read. Uh, he does a broad set of, um, it's, it's neural network biased, fine, but uh, lots of different input sets with a variety of data. Certainly something in that book is going to kind of match data that you have access to and keeps the network simple, keeps the code simple, very approachable, very well explained. 
So I would recommend starting there if you want to get into training. And, and for like Xamarin developers, I, I seem to remember, did you do a blog post or did James do a blog post on like, do, you know, getting a simple model up and running? I, I feel like there's something there. I, I did the original one and then he did a better post. He, he does this to me sometimes. <laughs> Just had to one up you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not a great writer. So, you know, um, I, I think um, probably for that, uh, that's using Microsoft's Custom Vision AI. And that is a great starting point. Just start throwing it some images of your favorite objects around the house and uh, teach it something. Who cares what? Just teach it something and then put that on a phone and walk around the house and see it match things. It, again, it's just eye opening. It just kind of gets your brain flowing on what the potential here is. Nice. Well, Frank, um, you know, I, can't, I don't know how long it's been since you were last on this show, but it was definitely too long. But thanks for, for coming on to chat through all this. I think it's been so long, I didn't even know I was on the show, sir. So thank you for having me back, <laughs> slash, inviting We're me just out that for the first time. To you, Frank. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm old and I'm dumb. <laughs> thank you well, for having me. On that note, <laughs> thanks, for, yeah, thanks again for, for coming on. Um, and thanks, as always, for everyone for listening. And, and we'll catch you next time on Gone Mobile. <laughs>